Let's remain standing. We're going to read together from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Today we're going to read the first part of the chapter and the very end, but we'll be looking at uh, the rest of the chapter as we go. So turn into 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in your Bible or find it on your phone, but let's read together from God's Word. About food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat, so that I won't cause my brother to fall. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I wanted to open with some clever story about uh, my cooking experiences so that I could illustrate the importance of a recipe. But the truth is, about the only thing I ever cook is corn dogs and popcorn, and you don't really need a recipe for that. Uh, so you'll just have to, uh, to go with me. That's, you know, the function of a recipe, right? Uh, it is uh, someone who is wiser or more experienced than you has listed out the different ingredients that you need and uh, the amounts that you need of those ingredients and when to apply them. And I'm told that it's important that you follow those instructions I just think it's important to have someone who loves you enough to cook for you, and so I'm very grateful for those people in my lives. But you know that that's how a recipe works. Well, today we're opening up a, a new section in this letter of 1 Corinthians. We've been walking through it over the last several months, and we're going to continue to, but, but we're going to be opening up a new window here. Now, chapter 8 through, verse, uh, through chapter 11, verse 1 is a, a section here where Paul is addressing a different kind of issue now. And in so doing, what I hope you will begin to see is that he lays out a recipe for holy living in an unholy land. Now, perhaps more than any other place, as we have read, you might already be thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? I mean, anybody here recently offered food to an idol? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think so. That's not really part of our cultural context, right? And so it's easy when we look at this to immediately start thinking, eh, so what? I don't think this is a problem for me. But what I want you to begin to, to see is that as Paul is, is kind of laying out, here's the recipe for holy living in a very pagan, uh, idol-oriented culture, we too can learn from this recipe. Because while on the surface, our culture might look vastly different, from that of the first century Greco-Roman Empire, as we start to dig in a little bit, there's actually some parallels that are pretty striking. I mean, for instance, what was, what was happening back then was that when, when people ran into problems, they would go to a certain idol or temple for that idol, and they would make an offering and make a prayer in the hope that that idol or that temple was going to, uh, to help them get better. So if they were struggling financially, there was an idol for that, and they would go to that temple, they would offer their sacrifice, and hope that things would get better. If they were struggling in their relationships, there was an idol for that, and so they could run to that temple and make their sacrifice to that idol and hope that things would get better. If they were, uh, were, were wrestling with uh, their health and uh, the, uh, their future, there was an idol for that, and so they would run to the temple, make their sacrifice, and, uh, and then they would hope that things would get better. This was just sort of the, the lay of the land in this, uh, this ancient pagan context, which seems very foreign to us, 
until we start to think about what happens in our own context. So when someone is struggling with money, they, they might get online and find one of those seminars where people uh, have given you a recipe for uh, how to achieve financial success in 10 steps as long as you pay the $200 entry fee. And you can go and get that, uh, that information. And so someone, rather than pulling out an animal or food to sacrifice, they pull out their credit card and they make a sacrifice of money and time hoping that things will get better. Or if they're struggling with relationships and uh, needing to get help, they might uh, pull up the phone book or Google some therapist or a counselor to run to. Now, hear me, I'm not opposed to therapy or counseling. They can be great tools. But do you see the instinct to run to some other source, some other person or entity to get help, and all it costs you is, well, pull out your credit card and make a sacrifice of money. Same thing with our health. We run to a doctor and we pull out. These things are not bad in our context, in our culture, but what I want you to see is the instinct that is in our hearts, just as it was in their culture, that there's a problem, we need to run out someplace to go and find help. And as long as we're willing to make a big enough financial investment, then surely it'll get better. So we're not so different, I don't think, from this ancient pagan culture. We just don't have idols and temples lying around. And yet, we still have hearts that are desperate. And out of that desperation, we'll run to solutions. Some of them positive, and some not so positive. Well, as we talk about what's happening here, we also need to understand that not only are these, these, these idols and temples everywhere, there's a dynamic that's happening within this particular church community that, that is also different than ours and, and somewhat foreign. This particular church was made up of, of people who were coming from some very different backgrounds. There were some who had grown up as, as Jews, being, they had been instructed that there was only one God and that all of these idols were not gods. They were just uh, rocks and wood and a waste of time and energy and money, so stay away from them. Don't, don't have anything to do with those idols. And then there were others in the community who had grown up going to all these temples, and they were friends with everybody who went to the temples, and this was their, this their regular context. And when they came to faith in Jesus, they came to understand that there was one God, Jesus Christ, who was superior to all of these other, other solutions, that, that in Jesus, they were finding not just help for the symptoms of their life, but a new life. That they were finding what Paul would describe in another context as in Jesus, they were becoming a new creation. So they didn't need that stuff anymore. And they recognized that it, wasn't, it just wasn't, wasn't important because Jesus was most significant. And because of that, some of them were saying, you know what, because I know that Jesus is most significant, then, then I can keep going to the temple and getting meat because it's, well, it's, not, it's just not an idol, or I'm free from that now, I can just enjoy it. Now, this might not seem like a, a big deal, but again, remember the context that's happening. Historians help us to understand that at this time, most people throughout this whole region had their diet primarily made up of wheat and barley. 
because that was what was affordable. Meat was very expensive and hard to get to, particularly in the cities, except around the times of the pagan festivals. And you know why? Well, it was then that animals got brought into these temples, and they were slaughtered, and then they opened up a drive through line like Rudy's will be in just a few minutes, and people just lined up to go get the food. You see, the temples operated not just as a place of worship, but it was a butcher shop. And it was a place where if you had money, you could go get some meat during those times. And it was readily available. Not just that, archaeologists have found that next to these, uh, these Roman temples, many of them had a space that was dedicated to just having social gatherings. They could set up tables, and apparently there's, there's writings where people were uh, having birthday parties and other social engagements right there next to the temple. Why? Because that's where the meat was. And so their fellowship halls back in this ancient world had a Rudy's attached to it, and that was a pretty good deal, right? So if you wanted to go hang out with people and have a birthday party and have meat, you just invited all your friends, you went to the temple, and you had a barbecue right there. For some of the Christians, they were saying, Hoorah! Let's eat meats. Let's go to Rudy's and we can enjoy ourselves because we know that Jesus is the only God, that all these idols are nothing and we shouldn't be worried about it. We just need to go have fun and enjoy ourselves. But there were others. Some were Jews who had been taught from their little childhood to stay away from anything associated with those idols. You didn't go to the parties. You didn't go to the festivals because there was one true God, Yahweh, and Yahweh was a jealous God. And anything that might associate you with that idol was something that was going to jeopardize your status as holy before God. And there were others, perhaps Gentile Christians, who understood that when the church first began, they had a big fight about this. And the, the solution between Gentiles and Jews and how they were to operate together was a, a compromise of sorts that was to protect the unity of these churches. And there were very few restrictions put on the Gentiles. But you know what Acts chapter 15 says? That there was one restriction that certainly would apply in this conversation. That the Jerusalem Christians counseling these Gentiles who were coming into the church weren't expected to act like Jews, but they were expected not to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. And so this church is having a pretty big conflict over this issue. And it's not just a, a little thing. This was a deep moral conscience-related issue. And so they say to Paul, what are we supposed to do with this? It's kind of like when, um, uh, when sometimes my boys will come up to me and uh, they'll want to know whose turn it is to play video games and they want me to resolve the issue because they both are convinced that it's their turn. And they usually have good arguments for it. And my response is usually, well, it's nobody's turn. We're going to turn it off and we're just not going to play at all. That's not what they want to hear, but it resolves it for me. I can imagine that the Apostle Paul wanted to just cut this off. Didn't want to deal with this kind of an issue but that's not how he responds. Instead, he very thoughtfully begins to engage this community. 
And his thoughtful response lays out a pattern for us to begin to understand how we might navigate areas where our consciences might lead us in different directions, but yet our conviction that Jesus is Lord can both unite and guide us forward. Now, I'm going to tell you that the rest of our time, I'm going to kind of lay out an overview of this, but you're going to have to come back next week if you want to see some other places to apply it, okay? You're not looking very convinced. All right, I'm going to be, uh, I'm taking notes. I'll take out my phone and I'll take your picture to see if you come back because you need to come back next week to hear uh, some of the ways that, that Paul applies this and that we need to, uh, to wrestle with applying this in our context. But let me lay out a foundation for you now and begin to show you how we're going to go through this. All right, as Paul begins to address this, he starts by talking to those who consider themselves to be the strong or the knowledgeable ones. These are the ones who said here in the verses that we read, we all have knowledge, and our knowledge is that there is only one God and that all these idols are nothing. But then Paul begins to press in, and he begins to, to point to a kind of knowledge that is holier than the knowledge that these people were claiming and in so doing, ignoring their brothers and sisters. Look at verse, verse 5 and then to verse 6. Paul says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, what he's saying here is, for the sake of the argument... Let's just assume that there are cosmic beings associated with these idols and these temples, because that's what some of the people believed. Just for the sake of the argument, let's grant that that might be the case. And then he says, here's what we know to be true, all of us, regardless of which side of the debate you are on. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, all things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Now let me just pause and make a couple of comments to help you understand what it is that Paul is setting up here. When he lays out this reference to God as the Father... He then qualifies to describe in what sense he means that God is our Father. He says that God is our Father in the sense that all things come from him. He's saying he is our Father in the sense that he is the origin of all of us and everything that's happening in this world. God is the origin of this created order. And Jesus... Christ is his agent of creation. That's why he says that all things are through him. That him is Jesus. And we exist through him. That is Jesus. Jesus was with the Father participating in creation. And here's the part that gets really significant for us. Jesus is the agent by which God the Father accomplishes Re-creation. 
So for everyone who claims Jesus as Lord has experienced life through him and has placed their faith in him, they are a new creation because Jesus has been that agent of creation. They are able to point to the Father not just as their origin, but as their goal because Jesus is accomplishing a work of recreation in them. This kind of knowledge has significant impact because what Paul has just argued for is that for those of us who are with Jesus, who claim to be Christians, then we have one goal of our lives. We have one goal, one end priority to consider. And you know what? It's not ourselves, right? All, let me read it to you again. There is one God the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. You and I do not exist for ourselves. We don't exist for our own self-fulfillment and our own self-gratification, for our own happiness. We are not the center of this universe, nor the center of our own reality. And this is not the way of thinking of the culture around us. And so Paul, as he pushes back on these people, he says, look, you have a knowledge, but your knowledge has not yet become holy knowledge. Because your lifestyle is still oriented first to yourself, to getting what you want, getting your needs met, and uh, getting your desires fulfilled, and getting to go to the parties and hang out, even though it means that you are harming one of your brothers and sisters. As long as self is the end goal of any human heart, then God the Father will not be. And that knowledge is not holy, and it will lead to destruction in horizontal relationships. And we know what a life that is oriented towards God as its goal looks like because of the agent of that God, Jesus Christ. And what typifies the life of Jesus? It's not self-actualization. It's not living to get all that he wants so that he can feel good and satisfied and get all of his needs and benefits met. That's not his life, is it? What typifies the life of Jesus is a life of self-sacrifice, of choosing the good of others over his own good. And so true knowledge, holy knowledge, the knowledge that is oriented to God as our goal and Jesus as our means, can never look at harm caused to another believer and say, well, that's on them. They just shouldn't be worried about that. I mean, really, don't they know what is true and what's best? And don't they know that we're free in Christ? No. True knowledge 
results in the third ingredient that I have to rush to because I'm running out of time. True knowledge results in love for one another. And what Paul is arguing for here is that that second ingredient, that freedom in Christ that is true and good, yes, he says to these people, yes, it's just food. And you're free to eat food. It's not what comes into your body that makes you holy or just, right? That's what Jesus said, but rather what comes out of your heart. So he says, yes, you're free. Yes, you are free in Christ. Eat at the idol's temple or don't eat at the idol temple. It doesn't matter because it's just food. And food will not lead you to God's judgment, either in his wrath or in his favor, because it's just food. And ultimately, he created it to be your servant, not your God. So you're free to eat. But do you know what trumps your freedom? Your love for one another. And so he instructs the strong and says, yes, you're free. You're right. You're free in Christ. But your freedom in Christ never is more important than your love for Christ's church. I experienced this as a young adult on the subject of alcohol. I was 21, and my friends were uh, good, um, good religious people and good Christian people, and they were happy to introduce me to my new freedom in Christ. And I had to make a choice about my freedom in Christ, to drink or not. But you know what I also knew? I was serving as a youth pastor at the time. And I knew that I had a whole lot of kids looking up at me, and they knew as well what choice I was making. And some of them were just itching for an excuse to say, it's fine for me to do it too. So I chose not to then, and still choose not to now, because while I have a freedom, my influence over the lives of others always trumps my license to enjoy what God has created. There'll be plenty of time for enjoying all of what God has created later. Right now, we ought to guard that influence out of love for one another. Let's pray. Jesus, would you, would you help us to think holy, clear, accurate thoughts about you? And as you teach us a true, holy knowledge, would you cause it to shape us to have holy hearts that love you and love others? And would you, as you do that, would you show us how to have holy freedom to, to truly be free, to enjoy what this world is that you've created but yet not ever to be mastered by it and always willing to do exactly what Jesus did, to lay down our freedom 
out of love. Make us a holy people who love one another the way Jesus has loved us. We pray this in his true and good name.